Today's scripture reading will be found in Exodus chapter 19, and I'll be starting at verse 1 and reading to the end of the chapter. And in your pew bowels in front of you, the page 60. Again, that's Exodus chapter 19. On the third day, new noon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses, and called, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, or he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the feet of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped into smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of the Lord.
Exodus chapter 19. I hope you have your Bible still open and that you'll follow follow with me as we work our way through this passage. Now, if we were tracking the Israelites on the Find My Friends app, we would see their icon moving from Rephidim, and that you'll recall that place as being the location where God miraculously provided water for them in the midst of the wilderness. And that it's also the same place where God won for them a great victory against the Amalekites. So you'd see their, their icon slowly moving from Rephidim and then stopping again in the wilderness of Sinai, just shy of the mountain range that bears that same name. And Sinai is going to be a, it's going to prove to be a pretty significant stop. You know, if we'd, we'd have to, if we kept watching, we'd have to watch that icon in the app for more than a year before we saw it move on from Sinai. A year in terms of time, but in terms of the text, Israel doesn't move from this spot until Numbers chapter 10, if you can believe that. That's the rest of Exodus, that's all of Leviticus, and that's a good chunk of Numbers. All right here in the wilderness of Sinai. This represents over 50 chapters of laws and regulations and detailed prescriptions for for how to live and worship as the people of God. And I don't know how that strikes you. (coughs) If I'm being honest with you, I have to just confess that I, I haven't exactly been looking forward to this portion of Exodus. I won't say that I've been dreading it, but I... I certainly recognize that it isn't really the kind of thing that makes for exciting preaching. You know what I mean? You know, sometimes uh, preachers or other people will come to a text and they'll say, that'll preach. But most people are not saying that about the latter half of Exodus and Leviticus and, and Numbers. So I've been kind of, I'm not gonna say dreading, but I'm, I'm reluctant to hit this part because I'm aware that in the eye, you know, the eyes of most people kind of begin to glaze over as soon as they hear things like "thou shalt." Okay, and this, this, uh, this is typically the point. I don't know, mid March, I guess, where a person's New Year's resolution to read through the entire Bible in a year. This is almost exactly the point where it starts to go off the rails. But we should consider what it says about the Lord, that he would devote so much of his revelation to give these laws and these instructions. It's clearly, in in his mind, vital that we would know and understand his will and his way for all of our ways. As it turns out, the things that are being discussed here are matters of life and death. They're incredibly important. And then you have to consider what all of this says about us, that we nod off uh, whenever the Lord sets forth his law. And worse, it's often the case that we actively resist his regulations. It's not just a matter of like passively not paying attention. It's actively rebelling when it comes to the law of God. And thankfully, the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves, which is why we have Exodus chapter 19 before Exodus 
chapter 20. Before launching fully into the law, the Lord knows that his people need to be prepared. If you had tracked me on Find My Friends, four weeks ago, you would have seen my little avatar in the, the beautiful mountains of Salento, Colombia, where I visited a traditional coffee farm, and it was an amazing experience. I got to participate in, or at least witness, all, every part of the process from planting to the poor. And it was only a three-hour tour, but it was just enough to exposure to turn a person into a coffee snob, you know, if, if they weren't careful. Um, I learned, for example, that the vast majority of us are, we've never really tasted good coffee. We, much of what we drink is B-grade. It's, it's roasted to the point of being burned. You know, it's black so that it'll hide all of the impurities. It'll hide the fact, for example, that most of the, the beans had been hollowed out by insects or other kinds of, you name it. Anyways, as, we're, as we in this tour are drinking our freshly roasted, freshly ground grade A coffee, our guide explains to us the three-sip rule. The three-sip rule. That's how many sips it takes for you to actually experience the full flavor of the coffee. The first sip is basically a write-off because you're still tasting whatever was in your mouth previously. In my case, you know, spearmint gum. The second sip is called the flush. And, you know, your, your mouth still isn't primed for coffee. So you need to take a big sip and then you just got to let that coffee swirl around every nook and cranny of your mouth and it allows your taste buds to adjust themselves to the to the heat and to the pH of the coffee so that you'll be able to to get in your third sip the full flavor and all all of the the glory and the wonder and the deliciousness that that particular bean has on offer in the same way, I think one of the main reasons why we're so blah about the law, if I could put it that way, is that we are so accustomed to B and C level pursuits. We've never really tr tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I hope you understand that it is possible to delight in the law of the Lord. It is possible to get to a place where you pant for his righteous commands. The psalmist can honestly say in Psalm 119, verse 103, the, the whole great big psalm, by the way, is a meditation and a delighting in the law of the Lord. But in verse 103, the psalmist can say, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But our, our palates need to be prepped for his precepts. In Exodus chapter 19, the Lord prepares his people for the giving of the law, and he prepares them in the most memorable way possible, which is that he meets with them. He meets with them. I take verse 17 to kind of be the central verse in the chapter, not just physically, but thematically. It says, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. 
So let's look at four aspects of that incredible meeting. I want you to first to consider the, the preamble to that meeting in the first six verses. The preamble to that meeting. And by preamble, I mean uh, an introduction. This is where a person kind of lays out their reasons and their aims, their justifications for whatever it is that's going to follow. And you know, as well as I do, that there are some preambles that are, you know, quite honestly, we could do without. Uh, yesterday, for example, I, I Googled on my phone, trying to see if there was a way that you can air fry pumpkin seeds. You know, and yes was the answer. And so, you know, various w websites offered to, to tell me how. And I selected one. I don't, I don't know, it was something like basicmom.com or something. I, I don't know what it was. But I started reading the thing, and I'm scrolling down and down and down, trying to find the instructions. And this chick's telling me her whole life story. <laughs> and I'm like, skip the preamble. Just tell me how to fry the stinking pumpkin seeds. <laughs> but sometimes uh, a preamble effectively whets your appetite for what's to come. Like this one. Have you heard this one? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare in this, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution. Oh, that's good, that's good stuff. And after that, you're ready to hear, you don't care if it's regulations, because you, you now understand the aim, you understand the justification. And in the same way, before the law is given, before God meets with his people, the Lord has Moses tell Israel in verse 4, You the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's, that's pretty important preamble. Okay, You don't flick your finger past that stuff. We're only going to be prepared to live for the Lord. We're only going to be ready to follow his commands if we remember just how graciously he has dealt with us. The Lord who speaks his precepts is the same Lord who has saved his people. And neither is this Lord and his law cold and harsh and distant. Nothing could be further from the truth. He, do you see how he, he says how tenderly he deals with us? Like an eagle whose who's, uh, fledgling seems to be failing that first flight. And so the Lord swoops underneath. And he swoops underneath us. And he bears us up on his pinions. Notice where he has brought his people. Notice that it's not first and foremost to a place. He's brought his people to a person. He has brought us to himself in order, you might say, to form a more perfect union. And this leads right into the next part of the preamble, which is contained in verses 5 and 6. And it's a word about identity. 
It's also, because it's a word about identity, it's also a word about mission, about purpose. The Lord brings up Israel in order to be his treasured possession. That, that's a beautiful phrase. And it refers to the most precious things that a king owns. It, it, later on in, in the Bible, we'll see the same term used to describe um, David's possessions as a king. The things that he loves and yet he sacrifices and gives them up in order that they might be used in the building of the temple. Uh, treasured possessions. This is what we are, brothers and sisters, to our Heavenly Father. And you could ask, if you're talking about the most treasured possessions of all that the king owns, you could ask, well, what does this king own? And it's only the whole earth. It's all the, the peoples in the earth. Look at the end of verse 5. Yet out of this whole earth and out of all the nations, the king has deliberately chosen this small, insignificant, no, of no account group of, of slaves in order to rescue them and then bring them to himself that he might be their God and that he might, they might be his people. And not only that, that, that he, he calls them, and this is all purpose stuff, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And this is beginning to signal something about our mission. We're to conduct ourselves in holiness, even as God is holy. And we're to do so as an example to the nations, to the other peoples. As priests, we are called to mediate the Lord's blessings to the ends of the earth. That, that's Israel's purpose. That's our ultimate purpose. And, okay, there's great, I understand that there's great potential for confusion here. So let me just, I want to be very clear about something. Because maybe you're reading the conditional language in verse 5, where it says, if you obey and keep my covenant, and then the implied then, you will be my treasured possession. And we wonder, oh, okay, so does this mean that the people will have to earn their salvation? And that they'll have to work for their status? And the answer to that is no, resoundingly, okay? Because I want you to notice that this is, this is after Egypt. The people at this point have already been rescued. They've already been saved. They already have the status as sons. And I think that the point here is that their obedience is the only proper response in light of all that the Lord has done for them. If they fail to obey what the Lord is about to command them, then they're going to miss out on all of the enjoyment of all of the blessings and the benefits of their freedom. In other words, you might say they will fail to secure the blessings of liberty to themselves and to their posterity. So that's the preamble. And it's a, it's a recollection of all that the Lord has done and all that he has made this people to be, and it's designed to lead the people on remembrance of that and upon their gratefulness for that. It's, it's designed to lead the people to say, yes, Lord, meet with us, speak to us, and all that you speak, we will do. That's, that's the only right response when you understand this preamble. And this is precisely the response of the people in verse 8. Do you see it there? All that you speak, 
we will do. It doesn't command us, and we will obey. And you've got to love the zeal there, even if it is somewhat naive. Let's just be honest. Um, my, my wife and I were talking about cross-stitching this week. I don't know. I'm not sure why, but it came up in a conversation. And then I had a flashback to a time when I was a kid. I, I was probably something like Johnny's age. I was probably around eight years old. And my Achilles heel at that point in my life, and still is today, my mouth. All right? So even at eight, it was patently obvious that that was going to, it was going to get me into trouble if I wasn't careful. Well, besides washing my mouth out with soap, um, my mom also took a, a much more positive approach, and she cross-stitched me this, this beautiful thing to hang on my wall. It, it was a really beautiful piece. It took her quite a while. On the upper part of it was like an old-fashioned coupe, like from the 1920s or 30s, a roadster, beautiful classic car. And then um, on the lower part, she cross-stitched the script from Proverbs chapter 23, verses 15 to 16. And it, and it said, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart also will be glad. And my inmost spirit will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. And I was pretty moved by that. And so I promptly took a, a brown marker because that matched the thread color. And I wrote underneath, yes, mom, they will. And I don't know how, how you feel about that, that move right there. You're probably torn like my mom was. It's somewhere between that's adorable and that's a complete disaster. Whatever it was, whatever I was doing there, it was, it was pretty naive. It's, it's easy to make those kinds of resolutions when you have no idea the depths of your own deprav depravity and, and pride and presumption and all the rest. But the Lord knows, and that leads us to a second point, which is the purpose of the meeting. We see this in verses 7 to 9. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this upcoming meeting with the Lord in preparation for the giving of the law. For one, it's going to instill in people the kind of reverence and awe, fear, if you want to use that word, that is going to be necessary for obedience. You, you need to have fear in order to obey. And this is going to accomplish that in, in spades, this meeting. And we might have time to... Um, consider that idea under another point. I, I'm not going to make you any promises because I'm well aware that uh, when I step behind this pulpit, I enter some weird time warp. Um, that's a, that's a definitely a, a purpose of the meeting. But for now, I just want to make sure that I draw your attention to the purpose that the Lord explicitly gives in verse 9. The Lord says, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that, and that's a, that's a purpose word, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. Here's what the Lord knows. He knows that despite the people's good intentions about obedience, that they don't exactly have a great track record, especially as it concerns Moses. Moses, as you know, is a, is a mediator. 
And even if you haven't understood that up to this point, you can certainly understand it from this passage because he is the go-between. And we see him constantly going up the mountain to hear from the Lord and then going down the mountain to report to the people and then going back up to the mountain to report to the Lord what the people's response was. Moses is a mediator, but let's just remember that the people have not yet demonstrated that they're zealous to follow God's man. Right? At every turn, we've seen them complaining against him. In fact, this started all the way back, even from the very first. You could go back 40 years in history and hear a couple of Israelites saying to him, who made you to be judge and ruler over us? And that's the mindset they have to the present day. So the Lord determines that he's going to meet with his people in such a way as would clearly authenticate Moses' ministry. After this meeting, no one's going to dare to say to Moses, who, who are you to demand that of me? Why do I, why, why do I have to do what you say? You say you know? No one's going to be able to say that ever again because they will all be able to listen to these words that the Lord thunders from Sinai. He's not... He's going to give it to Moses, but he's going to do it in a way that everyone can hear and understand that these are not just the mere words of a man. These are the thundering words of a holy God. The Lord, here, here's a point to make. The Lord knows our hearts, even if we don't. The Lord understands that despite our best intentions, we are, by nature, rebels. We're quick to disobey our parents. We're, we're quick to just ignore our teachers and our pastors and our, our government, forgetting that all of these are authorities that have been delegated by God, established by God. And in some cases, like our parents and, and our pastors, the, they're only asking us, they're only demanding things of us that God himself has demanded. They're simply our, the, God's spokespeople. And if we're ever going to be in a position to obey the law of God, we need to, to meet him, so to speak. We need to, we need to understand who God truly is, as well as understand who he has truly authorized and delegated authority to. And this brings to mind a, a great sermon that our friend Ed Tresker preached to us back in the summer from Matthew chapter 17. And that text is about another very memorable mountaintop experience where the people could see the glory of God in full display and where the Lord God took the opportunity to fully authenticate his messenger, his man. Moses actually was there. But this time, the Lord was validating the one who was greater than Moses. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice thundered from heaven saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The Lord does this for our sake, to prompt our obedience. And that was the purpose of this meeting, so that the people would understand and believe that it wasn't Moses 
arbitrarily asking them to obey all of these commandments. The, these are not man-made laws. And, and let's just be honest, because I think some of you have bought into the, that old canard, that, that thing that just keeps going around generation from generation. When you ask people about religion and church, you ask someone on the street, do you, do you have a church that you go to? And they are so easy to brush it off and say, oh, that's just man-made stuff. Well, is it? Are you sure? It's not. This is not just arbitrary things that man in his own mind concocts. This is the word of God. These are the commands of God that he speaks through, yes, through mediators. But, but we are all accountable to this Lord, this lawgiver. Let's look in the third place at the preparations for the meeting. You can see this in verses 9 to 15. So imagine what it would be like for the people to hear Moses speaking on behalf of the Lord, tell them that in three days, the Lord is going to meet with them on this mountain. Imagine that. As verse 11 says, on the third day, the Lord is going to come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. I'm sure that when they picked themselves off the ground, they might, they might have actually started to wonder, well, why can't this just happen immediately? Why not right now? Why wait three days? Well, you wait three days because there are necessary preparations for this meeting. This is Yahweh we're talking about. This is the one true and living God. This is the king over all the earth. He doesn't need prep time, but the people certainly do. You don't just waltz into a meeting with the king of kings. And the Lord, through Moses, outlines three preparations that needed to be made. There's at least these three. We're not given all of the details here. And the way that the third one is presented makes me think that there's actually a lot more details that are provided to the people, but not necessarily to us in the text. But there are at least three and the first preparation has to do with cleansing. Cleansing. The people needed to be clean. Their clothes needed to be fresh out of the dryer for this meeting. Okay? And th this is much more than, than simply what good manners would require on a date, let alone meeting with a deity. It's, it's much more than that. It, in fact, it's, it's much more symbolic than anything. Our problem isn't so much our garments, but our garments are symbolic, really, of our souls. And the point is, we cannot approach a pure and holy God with, with any stain of, of sin or moral filthiness. When, when, when we realize that, then we can't help but cry out in the words of a chorus to a beautiful hymn that was written by the late R.C. Sproul. I love this song that he wrote. And the chorus says, clothe us in your righteousness, hide filthy rags of sin, dress us in your perfect garb, both outside and within. To, to meet the Lord, we must first undergo a cleansing. And then the second preparation has to do with, a, with fencing. Not just cleansing, but fencing. The, the Lord instructs Moses to set limits around the base of the, of the mountain. 
kind of like a construction crew does when they've you know opened up an excavation they've dug a, a big pit uh, but they don't have time to finish it before quitting time which apparently is like 2:30 or something anyway they they so they put a snow fence around it and i think the law requires that so that people don't inadvertently fall into it you know it's dangerous it's dangerous to be walking down the sidewalk and then to have a big pit right in front of you. But do you, know, you want to know something else that's dangerous? Being in the presence of the living God. The, the Lord is going to descend on this, mountains, on this mountain, and, and that means that the average citizen, even a cleansed citizen, must not go up to the mount, on the mountain. They can approach the base of it, but the Lord says, Moses, you, you really need to put a snow fence around the perimeter of this mountain because if anyone crosses over it, or even if they touch the edge of the mountain, that person must be put to death. Or if it's an animal, there, there's no intentionality about that whatsoever. But still, that's not the point. The point is that God is holy and his presence is pure and you do not approach a mere mortal doesn't just approach the, the holy presence of God. And if an animal or a person needs to be put to death, notice this, the, the executioner is going to have to be very careful not to get too close. He's going to have to perform the execution in a hands-off sort of a way, you know, like from a distance, whether from a gun or a dart or whatever. You, you, need, you need to be careful with these things not again not because the god is just so arbitrary and finicky it's not it's not that he's got like personal space issues he's got the issues with us the issue is with us and, and and the issue arises from the fact that we are sinful and he is holy and pure he, he dwells in inapproachable light now, a third part of the preparation is found in verse 15. And it almost comes across as an, oh yeah, I almost forgot. Moses says, be ready for the third day. And oh yeah, don't go near a woman. Don't touch a woman. And the, all the husbands are like, wait, what? Yeah, prepare by cleansing. Prepare by fencing. But prepare also by abstaining. And I don't want you to misunderstand this point, okay? It's not like marital relations are sinful. On the contrary, as the young people are learning on Wednesday night, and as our adults uh, talked about this morning in Sunday school class, <coughs> um, the, let's put this delicately. I'll put it the way Calvin puts it. The nuptial bed is undefiled, okay? This, Sex is God's good gift to be enjoyed on his terms in the context that he um, commands. It's good, but it's, we could also say it's, it's natural. It's, it's earthy. And thus, it's out of place when you're preparing for something that is supernatural. When you are consecrating yourself for a divine encounter, then it's, it's a little bit out of place to, to be giving yourself to those earthy sorts of things. And you might think that this is extremely old-fashioned idea, 
But I would just, I would just uh, remind you that this idea seems to persist in the apostolic instruction that Paul gives. And he's writing to married couples, believers, under the new covenant. And he says this, Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Paul's saying it's, it's, it's typically not good to deny yourselves and to abstain. But there are special occasions when it would be appropriate for you to do just that. And the occasion is when you are preparing to meet with God. In this case, in prayer. Devoting yourself to prayer, perhaps about a very specific thing. So in Paul's, again, in Paul's mind, it's appropriate to abstain from that good gift temporarily for the purpose of meeting with God. The people need to be prepared. And we're, we're fond of welcoming to people to um, the church and to the Lord um, by saying things like, this is very fashionable to say in the evangelical church, we, we like to say to people, come as you are. And I, I think I understand what people mean by that. And so I don't want to dog it too much. But, but can I dog it a little bit? We're, we're calling people to meet with the living God. So no, it's, it's probably not appropriate that they would come wearing their pajama bottoms. Okay, I, I hope you, I, I, I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but, and I, ho- I actually hope that you've managed to stay away from Twitter, or X as it's called now, I guess. It's, it's becoming very infamous for all of the, all of the warfare that's, that's waged on that platform. And the, it turns out that the reformed and evangelical community on Twitter is probably the worst offenders out of anybody. And uh, a month ago, Tracy and I were talking about this last week. A month ago, Pastor John Piper, who we all uh, love, um, tweeted something that I thought was pretty innocuous, but all of Christendom just exploded at it. And so much so that Fox News actually picked up the story of this skirmish. Okay, so here I'll, I'll read to you Piper's offending tweet. He asks this, Can we reassess whether Sunday coffee sipping in sanctuaries fits? And I don't, I don't want to step on toes, and I don't even want to, I don't even think I have to make a conclusion right here, but I can say, yes, Pastor John, we can certainly reassess it. We should at least be able to ask the question. I hope that we're constantly reassessing whether what we do as we are preparing to meet with the Lord fits. I'm convinced that our, our error is far more likely to be on the side of being far too casual, far too ordinary, far too comfortable, too uncleansed in terms of our approach to the Lord. This is, this is one of the reasons that I ask the young men when they're reading scripture not to, to read it when they're standing before you publicly reading scripture, to read it from their phone. You know, you want to get really technical about it, and there's no difference. It's the word of God, digitally, 
as much as it is here. But these young men and I and you, we're, we're holding this stupid thing in our phone all day long and we're flipping around from this app to the other app to our Bible app to Facebook. It's far too ordinary. Would you not agree that there's something different about standing before the people of God reading from a physical copy of God's word? I don't know, even if it's just in our own minds where we're, where we're recognizing that there, this, this is no ordinary thing. I want to I get away from the ordinary. I want to be prepared in my heart, in my mind to approach the living God. <clears throat> There's room for discussion of all these things, of course. Probably not here. But maybe in your small groups. Um, maybe this afternoon you can meet and talk about that. Oh, you guys don't have small groups this afternoon? Well, we do in Hornell. <laughs> Maybe one day you'll be as spiritual as the Hornell small group. <laughs> but let's look fourthly and finally at the points from the meeting. The points from the meeting. Verses uh, 16 to the end of the chapter. Uh, when my wife gets home from a meeting, say it's the Woman of the Word conference, and by the way, I'm very tempted to just take time here to say how much I'm thankful for our ladies for putting on such an excellent conference every single year, and they uh, did it again this year. I'm tempted to do that, but I'm not going to do that. I'd be tempted also to, to just acknowledge uh, Brother Tom Kranz and his team of men who serve so well. Um, I'm tempted to do that, but I don't have time to do that, so we won't, we won't do that. But when my wife gets home from a meeting like that, I, I want to hear all about it. Well, not, not all about it. <laughs> there's, there's usually not time, you know, to hear it, the, the blow by blow. But I'll typically narrow her down by, by asking, saying something like, give me the highlights. Give me, give me the highlights. And I'm typically interested in things like, how was the speaker? How did the breakouts go? How was the food? Especially because the guys were responsible for it. That's, that's an important question. How did that go? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to report that the answer to all of those questions yesterday was phenomenal. And once again, time is a factor for us. It always is, as we're considering this meeting with Yahweh. So let's just be content, I guess, with the highlights. What are the takeaway points from this meeting? And like my Woman of the Word conference questions, I'm basically interested in three main categories here. First, what is the point as it pertains to Yahweh? What is the point of this meeting as it pertains to Yahweh? And the takeaway point here simply is this. He is holy. God is holy. A, a couple of months ago, I saw this insane video that was shot from the inside of a car from some young guys who were doing, they called themselves storm chasers. Okay, so it was, it was three or four young guys. They're following this tornado from a distance, but not really from a distance. <coughs> In order to get it all on film, and I'm sure you can predict what's happened 
here, maybe you've seen it. Suddenly that thing shifted and they found themselves in the path of this tornado with no way of escape. They, they were hemmed in and now this tornado is bearing down on them. And the, the video gets very dark, very chaotic. They're engulfed in, in cloud and wind and flying debris. And you hear these guys screaming, strapping young men that are just reduced to screaming. And you can hear very clearly, at least one of the guys, just repeatedly pleading with the Lord for deliverance. Now, that's a good way, I think, to picture this meeting with Yahweh at Sinai. It's like being in the middle of a tornado. I don't know, I don't know how you were ready to picture it. Maybe you, when, when you hear, oh, there's going to be a meeting with God, maybe you think, oh, won't that be nice? Won't that be a lovely little meeting? But then we read in verses 16 to 20 of a cloud clouds and and darkness that are so thick that it's palpable you can feel it we read of trumpet blasts that signal Yahweh's approaching and and they get louder as he gets closer and comes nearer and it sounds more like air raid sirens these people find themselves in the middle not just of a cloud but of smoke because the Lord is descending in fire And so the, the mountain, actually, in terms of its shape and, and its smoking, is starting to resemble more of like a furnace, a giant chimney. And all of this is, is like stock biblical language. You come across it over and over in Scripture for what's called a theophany, uh, a, an appearance of God. And it always has the same effect. We read at the end of verse 16 that all the people in the camp trembled Hebrews tells us that Moses says I am trembling greatly and not just Moses and the people but verse 18 tells us that the whole mountain is trembling same word there shaking why because Yahweh is holy and and Yahweh is heavy that's the Hebrew word kavoth and it it, it speaks to the weightiness of his presence and, and the substance of his glory And so, brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, behold your God. Who is like this God? Glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. Our God is a consuming fire. You think being caught in a tornado is bad. What a fearful thing it would be to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Well, because of the point that pertains to us. That's the second thing. What's the point pertaining to us? God is holy. We are not. We are not. We've already started to see this point when we talked about the preparations, the the cleansing, the necessary distance, the abstaining. All of this is required because we are flesh and bone. We're sinful. There's there's a necessary distance between a sinful creation and a holy God. But I think this point is actually also elaborated in verses 21 to 25. And I'll just go ahead and admit to you that I find this portion of the text baffling. Actually, much of Exodus 19 
has been so, it still is very confusing to me. Even after hours and, and hours of study, I'm not, I'm not bragging about that. In fact, it might, it might be a slam on me. I, I, need, I need to study a lot to even f figure out what's going on. And even at, at the end of all of that, I still can't say exactly what's going on. But I think it's, and here's, here's something that if you're not careful with the text, the Lord might come off in these verses like a nagging mother. You know, it's making sure that you've washed your hands and that you've done it properly. Did you hum the birthday song twice as you were scrubbing? And then Moses might sound like an exasperated kid in verse 23. Yes, you've already told us that and we're, we've already done it. I, I know enough to know that that's not, that's not the correct interpretation of this. But the point seems to be that the Lord obviously is way more aware of our uncleanness than we are. He's way more aware of our pride and our presumption than we are. He, the Lord seems to be very concerned, for example, that the priests might presume upon their special status as priests, and they might think they are invited to come up on the mountain to approach God. But that would spell disaster for those guys. The, the, Lord, the Lord also knows that whenever human beings see a snow fence, I don't know what it is about fences, he know, but he knows that our instinct is to, to jump over it. For example, that, that gate up here that, that blocks people from going up on the castle on the hill, how effective is that thing? It might as well, that, that's almost as inviting as a, as a gate that's flung wide open. Because our natural instinct as sinful rebels is, oh yeah, or that must be pretty great, whatever is up there. Let me go, let me go uh, break on through to the other side. The Lord is concerned that if the people were to exercise that very human way of thinking and acting and just break on through to the other side, then he will have to break out against them in wrath. And the Lord, yeah, Moses has told them, but I don't, I don't think they actually understand. Even after the cleansing, the preparation, do you really understand just how unholy you are? Are you really prepared to meet with a holy God? This is dangerous stuff. And it's dangerous because we are weak and we're sinful human beings. The point is, God is holy we are not, and we don't even realize the half of it. Now, if we're thinking correctly about these points, that God is holy and we are not, then it ought to lead us to the conclusion that we, uh, that we ought to learn about holiness. We, we ought to conclude in all of this, God's holy, we're not, the, the conclusion ought to be something like, well, then I, I need to know about holiness. I need to be ready now to hear his holy and righteous law. Whatever he commands, I'm going to be now prepared to do because we believe that it is good and right. And I, I believe at the same time that I don't know what's good and right. 
And, and my way of thinking and acting has only ever got me into disaster. Lord, would you teach me your righteous way? So we're ready for chapter 20, I think, at this point. But actually, we're, we're ready for something way beyond chapter 20. There's a final point here, and it pertains to Christ. Even before we hear of the law, we are aware of our native sin and our rebellion. And David asks in Psalm chapter 24, verse 3, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer is, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And that's got us looking around for a candidate. Is that you? It's not me. You? Could it be him? Could it be him? Could it be Moses? Moses seems to be able to ascend. He's walking up and down the mountain. And by the way, given all that we know here, that, that's astounding. He's speaking for God, and, and he is speaking to God on behalf of the people. He's a mediator. And we say, yeah, that's what we need. We need a mediator between man and God. But we need one that's greater than Moses. Because Moses, for all of his wonderful qualities, if we haven't seen this already, we're going to see it very shortly, that Moses is not perfect. Moses is a sinner too. What we need is a savior. We need someone who will save us from the wrath to come because that wrath is going to be unbearable for us. To, to, we, we can't handle it. It, it will mean our, our ultimate death and destruction and devastation. If the smoke and the fire and the peals of thunder and lightning on the mountain are any indication, and that's God meeting with the people that are his treasured possession, think about what it'll be if you were under the wrath of this holy God. I, I need a savior. I need a mediator. I, need, I don't just need the Lord to be my lawgiver. I need a law keeper. And friends, it's, it's my great privilege to be able to proclaim to you that there is such a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is such a, a law keeper. And he cleanses all who put their trust in him. He clothes us in his righteousness. His perfect record of law-keeping, he imputes to those who believe on his name. And all of our sin is imputed to him as he goes to the cross and bears it. And, it, and, and bears that awful meeting with God where all of his wrath is poured out against my sin. The, the sky goes dark. There's earthquakes and, and terrors, and it's all because of God's wrath coming against my sin, borne up by his son. That's what I need. I need a savior like that. And, and Christ's work of mediation and redemption is so wonderful and so complete that the author to the Hebrews can make this incredible statement. I'm referring to the one that Glenn read at the beginning of the service. But it might mean something more to you now when you hear what Hebrews 12 says. For you have come 
to what may be touched, a, a, a bla- you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You've not come to that, but you've come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God. You've met with God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. That's who you've come to, the mediator of a new covenant. You've come to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, this is what we have in Christ. And those who are redeemed by Christ, do you know what we're called? We're called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, for this purpose, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have the great duty and the great privilege of being holy, even as he is holy, in order to be a blessing and to be a light to the nations. And so maybe we're ready for Exodus 20. Not now. Not now. I wish you could see the look on your faces. Next week, Lord willing. Next week.